And if you think about the most unique companies today and the most innovative companies today, they all have some recurring daily or weekly relationship or service provision to the consumer. I'm your host, Dave Knox, and this is Predicting the Turn, a show that helps business leaders meet their industry's inevitable disruption head on. Welcome to another episode of Predicting the Turn. Today, we're going to jump back into the world of venture capital and join one of my favorite early stage investors out there. He is the founder of Haystack Ventures and also partner at Lightspeed. Samil Shaw, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Good good to talk with you today. Always a pleasure. Well, I want to start off by really going into your background. Can you first talk about how did you even get into venture capital to begin with? Well, I know this is about a 20-minute podcast, and the reality is the story, the full story could take a few beers uh, uh, over the course of hours. But the, sh- the short story is that if you rewind the tape back to about eight, nine years ago, I was out here, moved back to the Bay Area. I was living in downtown Palo Alto. My wife was working in Stanford, and I was trying to cut into the startup ecosystem, and that was a really hard Thing for me to do, it was very difficult. That's where the multiple beers come in. What ended up happening is that I, I finally got, you know, started joining some of my friends' companies that I made out here, just even working for free or working for Sweat Equity. And uh, during that time, those turned into like different roles. And this is at the time when the iPhone was, you know, maybe three or four years out of the gate. And so people didn't really know how big Uber or Spotify, they didn't even know what Spotify was yet, if you can remember back to that time. So during that time, I was writing a lot online because I just enjoyed it. I was using Quora as a platform, you know, that was in the beta. The folks at TechCrunch had reached out to me. I'd been using Twitter already for three or four years actively. And so I just started to write online everywhere, just sharing my thoughts and points of view. And that kind of snowballed into a thing where a lot of people in the ecosystem found value from it. Uh, and again, this didn't happen overnight. It really happened over this like three-year period. And so a lot of the people who subscribed to my writing happened to be investors. And so they would write to me, correspond with me, and then we'd meet for coffee sometimes and they'd meet their partners and kind of yada, yada, yada. One of them approached me and said, you know, we'd like to make you a, a, a consultant to us and we'll pay you a little bit in moonlight with us. And I ended up doing that for seven different funds over the course of three years. And so the flashpoint here is I thought at the end of uh, when the last company I was working for got sold to Apple, I thought, oh, well, you know, one of these firms will just hire me. And they, they didn't hire me. So I was already kind of had my foot in the door of venture capital thinking I would get a job. And what ended up happening is I had two friends kind of pick me up from all that and say, start a small fund to be a venture partner with one fund, which was Bullpen you know, friends of ours. And what happened, two things happened. I really loved doing it. I, I knew I would like it. I didn't know I would love it. And then I got extremely lucky. So love and luck. Perfect. Well, and that brings us nicely to today where you invest through your own fund at Haystack, but you're also a venture partner at Lightspade. Can you talk about what's the difference between those two roles? Well, they're very different. Haystack, which is the fund I started and, you know, which Paul and Duncan and our friends at Bullpen plus many other friends were super helpful and supporting, supportive of me. It, we currently just closed our fifth fund. It's a $50 million vehicle. And we 
invest in very early stage startups. So the first million or $2 million that the company raises, we're part of those financing. And so it's a very small footprint. Like Chase, on the other hand, you know, very fortunate to be a partner, a venture partner there. You know, I go there every Monday. I sit in all most of their partner meetings. And, you know, Lifey's been around for almost 20 years. Uh, it was founded by four gentlemen who are all still very active. And they've had incredible success managing many, many billions of dollars across many vintages. People may recognize some of the companies that they were an early major investor in Snap on the consumer side, the Honest Company. On the enterprise side, companies that have already matured or exit like MuleSoft. And then, you know, that was, that was a massive hit. And then companies that are kind of coming up like TripActions, Rubrik, ThoughtSpot, Netscope. So just an incredible venture capital practice being built there. And so, you know, I get to go there every day and learn. So they're very different. It, it's sort of, uh, Haystack is sort of, you know, really competitive high school baseball and Lightspeed is the pro leagues. There we go. That's a good, uh, good analogy. So I want to switch into the world that we're living in with uh, technology today. So in 2019, we've seen this wave of long-awaited IPOs from some of those biggest names in tech that you just mentioned that Lightspeed was associated with. What's your takeaways for how the market has reacted to some of those IPOs? And what's going to be the impact on startups in the near term? It's a great question, David. And I'm glad you phrased it that way. Not a lot of people do. I think we've learned two things. One is for more capital efficient, software driven companies that have the benefit of a network effect in a global potential market like a Slack or Zoom, the line I use is that, you know, it's not inconceivable to think every professional in Malaysia will use Slack and Zoom, right? You couldn't say that 10 years ago. So the headroom for those companies and the ability to grow TAM is huge on a capital efficient basis. And so I think you see the market rewarding that potential upside, okay? What we've also learned from the 2019 IPO market is if you have a very high burn rate, if it costs you a lot of money to make money, Uber being you know, a prime example, people view the stock as a more mature stock with less upside potential. And so there's still tremendous value in the platform, but you know, Uber is unprecedented in, in the amount of spend that it incurs. And so if you put those two things together, I think capital efficient businesses with headroom that continue to go public, people will salivate and the public markets to invest in these companies and exploit that headroom. And companies that have very, very heavy high burn rates that are tough to put a cork into, that will be factored into consideration and potentially spook people. That makes total sense. So you, uh, you talked about that one of the things that got you into venture was your writing. And one of my favorite things that you write pretty often is unpacking posts when a major acquisition takes place. So when you look at these kind of unpacking a big deal, a big acquisition, what are you trying to capture on these, these takeaways and what inspires you? It's a great question, David. No one's asked me that. Part of it is tactical in the sense that in the moment when an acquisition happens, it's so rare and people may know the other people. And so it just becomes, it, it's almost like the police blotter you would read in your local newspaper growing up. You want to know what ha what's happening in your neighborhood. 
And so when an acquisition happens, it's sort of like, it's immediate neighborhood news, right? It's like getting an alert on Nextdoor. So part of that is the, the tactical, like preying on the urgency of attention around this. Second is, I feel like I'm uniquely qualified to explain to people what's happening because frankly, a lot of journalists don't really understand what's happening and why companies might be buying companies or why the price may be where it is or what the return may be for investors and shareholders. And so I feel like I can pretty, I can cut through that pretty quickly. And then third, I think it's just a reminder for everybody that these events are very rare. So everything is always up and to the right and the ecosystem's growing and blah, blah, blah. But the exits at M&A and the meaningful ones don't happen that often. And so we should stop and take a look and say, okay, this is a rare event. Why did it happen? And I think it's also just a good sober medicine for everybody, including myself, where, where you know you could work really hard or do all the right things and may not generate an exit. And some people who maybe didn't perform well or just got lucky may manufacture an exit. And life isn't fair. And you know, there's one post in particular I recall. I remember when Jet was acquired by Walmart for like three point something billion dollars. And I'm sure every e-commerce startup looked at that and, you know, maybe 80% of founders just looked in the mirror and said, what am I doing? <laughs> and so, you know, I think that they're interesting events for that reason. So you, you mentioned that the M&A is generally a pretty rare event, but one of those unpacking articles you talked about was that we just had our second billion dollar exit in the shaving space with uh, Harry's being sold to Edgewell and obviously following Dollar Shave Club selling to Unilever. What do you think has caused this sector of D2C to be such an attractive one? But also when you look at stuff like P&G buying Tristan Walker's company that you know sold, I think, for just above what it raised in venture. Um, so how do you think about that yeah. market? And why, why has that played out how it has? Yeah, and I think, you know, it, it would be great to like even just talk about this with, with your audience one day because I think your audience and, and you in particular have unique insights here. What I would say is look from afar from these companies, I don't know these companies personally, and I don't know the CPGs like you do. Looking at this from afar, I would say, you know, it may have been when you and I were growing up, we would go to CVS or we would go to Kroger or we would go to, you know, whatever grocery slash convenience store to buy razors and razor blades and shaving cream. We would go to the store, we'd go to the grocery store, Kroger, CVS, these sorts of things. And now, you know, purchasing behaviors, we all know this is changing. So that's one. Two is I think when you have a direct relationship with the consumer, you know, quote, D to C, you have an email relationship with them. You have something you're sending them in the mail every week. They're used to getting stuff from you. So there's kind of that brand affinity that builds in a different way than going to a Kroger. You don't have any brand affinity with Kroger. I think the third thing is like subscription. It puts your credit card down. They keep subscribing. It's replenishable. It's a razor and razor blade model, just in a different deployment model. So that's very comfortable. And then I think it's just like the active use case. So if you're, you know, selling to men and you have a bunch of other CPG inventory and SKUs on your shelf, and they're just buying these razors branded as Aries or Dollar Shave Club, are men, are the majority of men going to be more sensitive to brand variety or are they just going to want the convenience of a bundle? And they're going to say, you know, put in shaving cream, put in some shave gel. Oh, you have hair gel. Oh, you have, you know, toothpaste. Oh, you have deodorant, right? Just give it to me. 
right? I don't want to have to think about it. I don't want to go through Amazon and search for all the deodorant and all the soap. Like, I just don't care. I mean, Dollar Shave Club was brilliant with this when they did the butt wipes, right? It was just like, you know, it probably wasn't a big seller, but just like the marketing idea of like them being able to just push product through their channel, that's what makes it valuable. Now, I think it makes it valuable up to a point. I don't think these companies, they, they would have to turn into very different companies to produce everything themselves. But what they really got paid for at the end was the brand, the frequency of purchase and inter customer interaction, hitting the credit card and the ability to pump more things through the channel. Yeah, so if you double click on CPG a little bit more on what you just described, it's a business that measures itself not in being a $100 million business, but being billion-dollar businesses, Tide, Pampers, Coca-Cola, et cetera. And we're seeing a lot of these new modern brands, whether it's a Casper, an Allbirds, or you know any of the ones we just talked about, they're hitting this adolescence where they have to decide, do they become a large independent business, i.e. the next Nike Under Armour, or are they better served with M&A? How do you think that path will go for these companies? And what's the deciding factor of to grow into something big as the next Fortune 500 or be acquired by the Fortune 500? Well, I'd love your feedback on this, Steve. I think that in order to become a Fortune 500 new entrant CPG would require a type of scale that and capital expenditure that most investors are not willing to stomach. And so the likelihood of that happening is pretty low. I think it's lower when you add on to the fact that the folks running these CPG companies around the country, yes, they're a little bit old and set in their ways. Yes, they could do a lot of things better, but they're really smart. <laughs> they know how to invest in in new things. They know how to buy new companies. They know how to have a product mix and, and refresh the SKUs. And so I think that they're still in a very good position. And I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that they can acquire some of these startups and people will, will sell. And so I think they're in a they're in a good position to retain their conglomerate status. I think the question will be coming around strategy and deployment and relationship. Can these big CPGs, can Coca-Cola or Kroger or, or Unilever have new fresh blood inside the company to kind of say, we, we need to make sure that we get, you know, we use the term wallet share. How do we get more wallet share, more home share of our customer to make sure they're getting our stuff and we have a relationship with them? And then the other orthogonal threat is just Amazon, right? Where people are just going in there and saying deodorant. And now there's ads, you know, sponsored ads, sponsored posts, you know, price discrimination. And so it's just very difficult, you know, very difficult to compete against that. Yeah. And I think it goes back to your, the capital efficiency that you mentioned earlier, the investment to yeah. make some of those is tough. But, you know, I look back, one of my earlier episodes was with a guy named Jonathan Bostick, who is the founder of Truman's. And he made a really brilliant comment that, you know, one of the most valuable things for the Fortune 500 is actually the investment that they made on the capital side, that if they can find a way to partner with startups, 
that's actually a lot more valuable than any cash that they could bring to the table in many cases. Yeah. I, I would say the other thing is that, like, let's say you and I were sitting in the room with the um, you know, chief strategy officers of Unilever, Unilever Target, Kroger, you, you know, just name your CPG or big retailer. And I would just say, who are your core customers and what's your recurring relationship with them? What service are you providing them? I think that's a very tough question for the CPGs to answer. And if you think about the most unique companies today and the most innovative companies today, they all have some recurring daily or weekly relationship or service provision to the consumer, right? And so CPG doesn't have it. You're just selling stuff. So you need scale and you need, you need people to purchase, you know, continually to purchase. I mean, when you frame the question in terms of what's a recurring relationship and service provided to the customer, it's very difficult for these CPG companies to have an answer. And so I think it would take something radically different for people to feel like they're part of something. So like the analogy I would use here is, you know, let's say at a, like at Whole Foods, which again is like a, a mid to high end range brand that was eventually bought by Amazon, but think of it pre Amazon days. They started in a lot of their shops to like um, push back retail space in favor of like kind of dining or like having a pizza oven or like some places for people to eat. And then as like coffee shops moved out or like kind of got moved away or like they become less places to congregate, that became kind of a congregation place <laughs> for some people in some neighborhoods. Again, that's a small example, but like I do think the CPG companies will have to think about how do I use real estate to physically get in front of my customer and have more of a recurring service with them in the same way that they may be a member of Amazon Prime or that they may be a member of Costco? And I don't know what that answer is. Yeah, but it's a great point of how do you provide that service and that engagement? Um, you know, there was a post the other day talking about Lululemon and they opened a, a restaurant in their store in Chicago, actually. And yeah. it has oh. driven, I'll, I'll butcher the number, but I think it was like a 15% increase on month-on-month -month traffic for that because it was giving you that reason of, well, I don't have to skip my workout or skip this because I can do it all in one, which I think is a really smart way to think about it. Not that everybody should open a restaurant, but yeah. can you have that now, engagement? Do you have a right to from a brand stretch? Yeah, now Lululemon is a great example, right? Because that that seems to be in their DNA. Because I I just know from from my wife, right? They have they have free yoga classes, they have free like speed walking or like going on a trail run with folks, right? And they're kind of organizing this stuff as part of what they do, right? It just becomes a service that they provide. Now I'm looking at the market cap of Lululemon in real time. It's twenty three billion dollars, and so I think the tough thing for you know, the CPGs and stuff is like, should that have just been bought two years ago when it was an $8 billion company? You know, because Lululemon would be an amazing target for a large company to buy. That's difficult to buy a public company now, you know, that size. But if you think about it, then if, you, if people are going into Lululemon, you have the foot traffic, you have the cafe, you have the trail runs, you have the yoga classes. Well, then maybe you're selling other Lululemon stuff there. And again, you're going kind of all in one 
Maybe you have a membership there where you it's Lulu Express or Lulu Prime. You know, by the way, Apple's going to have to deal with this too. So it's not just the Unilevers of the world. Um, so it's a pretty big issue out there. Talent is a big part of predicting the turn. And as we talk about talent, I wanted to mention one of our sponsors, Hunt Club. Imagine the power of the best marketers in the world helping you to find your next marketing leader. That's the power of Hunt Club. Hunt Club is a new category of talent company that powers the network of experts, connectors, and business leaders to help you find the best talent. Let's face it, recruiting hasn't changed with the times. Hunt Club is changing the recruiting game by leveraging technology and crowdsource referrals to find you the best people possible for your company. Stop paying job boards that don't work or recruiting firms that recycle the same active candidates. Partner with Hunt Club. So related to that, you know, one of the uh, recent posts that you wrote, you put together, you talked about this concept of triangulation and how as an early stage investor, one signal is that you hear about a company from multiple, as you call it, non-overlapping sources. Can you talk a little bit more about that? And how do you think that same principle could be used by larger companies for startup engagement? Great question. So, so let me answer that in two parts. One is, what's the part that's just happening very specific to the Bay Area? The issue in the Bay Area is that we have a lot of companies being formed, which has its pros and cons associated with it. And it's very easy now to have one person tell you about a startup and they'll say, I really recommend this. And so you get too many recommendations and referrals. So one way of sifting through that is do other people who may not know each other tell you about the same thing? Because in the same way that bats kind of go through a cave in the middle of the night and don't um, run into things is that they're constantly bouncing sonar signals off the wall. And I think that's what a lot of investors do here because they're being told so many things. They want to hear it for multiple sources to get to ground truth and then they can hone in. In terms of companies, you know, I think it's a little bit different and I think it kind of comes more from the, the melding of like the product leaders at these CPG companies plus their strategy departments and basically saying, going back to this Lululemon, right? How do we sit inside a Unilever? Maybe, um, you know, Dave, you're the head of product at Unilever and I'm um, a leader on the strategy team and we just start saying, how do we take Unilever over the next 20, 50, 100 years? What's our customer engagement model? And I think it's more of like a vision around that and then buying pieces that fit into that and then integrating it rather than saying, oh, this is a startup we need to buy. It's more of a strategy question, right? So someone in, in the room may, you know, may agree with me and say, okay, we need a real estate footprint. And people in the room may disagree with me and say, no, that's a huge CapEx and we don't want to engage that way, right? And so I think once those debates are had, then the, you know, once a strategy is laid out, then the M&A teams can execute against that strategy. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. So, you know, speaking of those signals uh, that these companies can learn from and think about, you know, one of your Haystack investments is a really cool company called Second Measure that provides a unique view into consumer spending. How do you think large CPG and media companies can use Second Measure's data to kind of do exactly what you just described? 
Yeah, I think one of the reasons, one of the many reasons these new startups are interesting is because they're able to capture new types of consumer data and purchasing data and spend data in ways that we haven't. So second measure is not the only company, but it's a very interesting company in the space where they've brokered arrangements with financial institutions and credit card providers to aggregate and anonymize data to show hedge funds and VC funds and public investors what's happening to credit card spend. So they may say, you know, look, DoorDash is gaining share from Grub, and we see less credit cards hitting Grub, but then we see hitting DoorDash, and they can do interesting market sizing. I think of, like, focus groups, and Dave, you may know more about this, is, like, talking to smaller groups to, like, do product iteration. There's a huge debate in the Valley whether, like, people who are product creators should just create versus, like, going to focus groups. I don't know what the answer is, but I do think there's a wealth of data out there now. You've got to pay for it, but that could be more impactful to CPDs in, in developing their strategy and their product design because the sample size is much larger, right? And you can start looking at cohorts over months, over quarters, over years. And so that just hasn't been available before. Yeah, without that one. The thing I love about Second Measure, too, is the the thing you can find in data that people don't realize that you can find. You know, the ability to look at how is a certain new consumer brand performing in Cincinnati versus San Francisco because that spending of direct-to-consumer shows up on a credit card. You can measure in a way you never could when everything was stuck within a basket at Walmart or Target or, or something else. So it's a, a really fascinating data set. I, I would say, too, that, like, one example, I think, of a company, and I'm a little bit biased because I was involved as a seed investor in this company, but, you know, the, the food delivery wars have been sort of a bloodbath of, of capital and, and startups here. But I think second measure was like a large part of changing the narrative around this when DoorDash started to separate from Grub and Seamless and even Uber Eats, just showing the lift that they were able to take. And I think that drove a lot more of like the recent interest in the company from a financing standpoint, not to take away from their execution as a company. But I think that data was so powerful and was able to cut, like you said, in such a granular way, like down to geo, that people were able to build new models to assume how big it could get. Yeah, exactly. No, it's a great way to look at it. So shifting gears a little bit, you know, in recent years, Haystack has been a pretty active investor outside of the Bay Area. Why do you think this has been, and do you expect more investors to increase their efforts outside of the the home base of you know Silicon Valley? Yeah, I can really only answer this for myself because I'm not really sure what other people are going to do. Uh, what I'll say is I spent two or three years really focusing in the Bay Area with a sprinkling of New York. Uh, not much, you know, not much beyond that. Then I spent two or three years kind of being location agnostic because I thought in the Bay Area it was too difficult to, at the early stage, right, where I invest, to build a team and to have your runway build long. So I wanted to build some geographic diversity into the portfolio. I think now after, you know, a little under seven years of doing this and as we crack open a new fund, and, you know, I, I want to be sensitive here, I, but I also want to be direct and straightforward. Personally, I'm probably going to focus 
mostly on the Bay Area, New York, and LA, where there are ecosystems forming to support the entrepreneurs. And on a very rare case, something has to bubble up outside it. Now, again, I may change my mind in two years, but what I found over time is one, it's harder to have that relationship with the founder that I like to have when they're further away. And so part of that is just that. Part of it is just like the infectiousness of the peer pressure here in the Bay Area, I think really is a huge driving and motivating force. It's not to say you can't have that elsewhere, but it's just very unique here. I think three, most downstream investors, meaning larger VCs wouldn't say this, but they don't really want to take venture risk in an institutional way when they can't be physically close to the company and being involved. And so that, that provides a little bit of a barrier or friction around fundraising. And so for right now, you know, the focus has shifted a little bit, but that isn't, that isn't to say for your audience to take that, like it's changing. I'm just more explaining the on the ground realities of like what the challenges are related to that. Um, yeah. Well, and I think the relationship point, that's one that's not talked about enough because, uh, a great seed investor, you know, it's, it's a stretch to say they are a co-founder, but you do need to have that relationship that is much different than a later stage, where it is much more of a pure financial interaction and your yeah, engagement yeah. governance and boards and everything else. So that relationship is super mean, important. We do have founders who come here every month from Boston or Austin or Seattle. So there's a way to do it. You got to get on a plane a lot. And, you know, in some of these locations, they do have local investors who have popped up. But I just think the ecosystem and the peer pressure and, the, you know, the sort of what's in the water here is just a little bit different. So, you know, we're, we're probably snapping back a little bit from the last two to three years in terms of geographic focus. And, you know, we may change our minds again in two years. I don't, you know, I don't know. Yeah, no, that's the, the gift of being able to change your mind is a beautiful thing, so. Yeah. So for the, uh, you know, the final questions we kind of come up, you and I share the great honor of being dads to twins, though you have me beat because you have a, a third a daughter or a third child and your oldest being your daughter. How do you think fatherhood and particularly balancing, you know, the chaos that is having twins change your approach to business and how you think about optimizing your time and everything else? Oh boy. That could also be its own podcast. I think um, when the first kid came Kind of like six or nine months after she was born, I became really like almost overnight to something snapped inside of me about time management. And this was just about the time I was starting the funds and things were starting to work. And so I became a lot more rigorous with my time in terms of managing it. And, you know, just like everything has a cost of like, oh, if you're going to stay in the city for this drink, then you're going to, with traffic, you're going to get home with me past dinner and she's going to be sleeping. And so you just think, okay, well, how many times do I want to do that a week, right? All these little things where you, everything has a cascading effect on the child's schedule um, and when you're able to interact with your child. So that was kind of the first phase. The second phase was when kind of three to four months before my wife was going to give birth to twins, I got super, <laughs> I got super nervous and, uh, you know how your friends probably came up to you, Dave, and said, hey, let, let us know how we can help. And you kind of say thanks, you know, sort of polite thing to say. I was like, oh, here's how you can help. And so I, I enlisted friends' help right away because I knew that my time was going to get really, really crunched. And so I went into, like, military mode. 
around my time. And so, you know, I think part of it too is just like as you mature from being a kid to like teenager to like college and then young adult and then this transition, you kind of do a lot of things just because you have free time and that's what you do. Oh, you go to, you know, your Aunt Jenny's house for Christmas every year or you travel to Florida to visit so-and-so every year and all of a sudden, you, you know, not to be rude, but you just sort of sit back and think, why am I doing all this? I want to do this. And so your priorities just change. And what I found is just I do in that time what I want to do. And I don't, I don't think about anyone else in that time other than the family. And so it, it sounds more selfish, but it's really just more like intense prioritization, especially when, when those things, you know, after time, they're very finite and just go away. So I, I think how that's spilled over into business is this, like, you don't really have the luxury of time to like lollygag over decisions. You become respectful of other people's time. When you ask for a meeting of somebody else, you, you're respectful of their time, hopefully. And then you expect people to hopefully understand where you're coming from and respectful of your time. But it's a constant struggle to manage that clock. Yeah, no. I, I think that uh, that appreciation of time is such an important one. And it's why I'm so appreciative you've taken the time to share all your thoughts and your story here on the podcast. So thank you for that because it is yeah. the most yeah, valuable time to prioritize. Yeah, and I would say to your audience too, since it's a lot of the types of people I don't get to interact with much, like please email me or, you know, at Samil on Twitter or Samil at paystack.vc, email me anytime. And, um, you know, I can always email back. I always go back to people if they have questions or, or things like that. I, I really enjoy that, so. Awesome, well, thank you, Samil. It is always a pleasure and uh, we will talk really soon. Thanks so much for listening. If you like the show, hit that rating and make sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And for more resources, head over to predictingtheturn.com.